before we get rolling, I just want to make a quick announcement. Everybody say change is okay. Change is it's going to be okay. Um, you guys know that, I don't know, we came to you in November last year and asked you to be praying about a building project. If you look around, we're running out of seats and second service is typically a little fuller than this one. Um, and so we went down that road, the elders and I went down the road of um, architects and design and talking with the town and what we would need to do. And as we moved forward, we felt the Lord pump the brakes on us and shift us through some dreams and some um, just feeling like the Lord was speaking to our hearts individually. And so we want to let you know that what we're working on is that we are planning for a Bluffton campus that we will, in in God willing, we will launch. You can clap. That's great. Um, we will launch in June. Um, and so we are in the process now of lease agreements. We'll just run a facility one day a week. Um, fiscally, financially, it's going to be a, a much less of a task, obviously, than building right now. Building right now is crazy in this economy. Um, but we're also, as we think about doing a Bluffton campus, um, we really feel like the Lord is posturing us to, to bite down and to focus on reaching Hilton Head and for some of us to bite down and focus on reaching Bluffton. And so this is, in our minds, is very much a strategy um, to see this, this region really reached for the gospel of Jesus. And so that's what we're working on. You're going to see some changes. Again, it's okay, all right? Changes are okay. Um, but we're after souls. At the end of the day, we're after souls to bow their knee to Jesus. And um, there's an anointing and presence of the Lord in this house that we're believing is going to get dropped over there too um, in Bluffton. We're, we were leaving. We're going to see some folks get get radically filled with the Spirit. Amen? Okay, we're going to, again, you're going to see some more things roll out. We're going to, you know, we're not a big production church. We don't love technology, but we're going to have to use a little more technology. It's all going to be okay, guys. Y'all chill out. It's going to be good. I was telling some folks that I really feel like I can say this with authority. I'm confident that in the next two years we're going to see more souls come to come to know Jesus than we've ever seen. I'm confident that God is going to use us. Um, so bless the Lord. All right, we're in Ezra chapter 3, and let me pray over the word, and we're going to get rolling. Lord Jesus, we love you. We bless you. We belong to you. Lord, we just confess as a church family, we are not our own gods. We don't call the shots. We are not worthy of glory. Lord, we come and, and bow this morning. This is our bowing. We bow our knees and we say, Jesus Christ is Lord. We say, you're holy, you're beautiful, and you're wonderful and sweet, Jesus. There's no one sweet like you. No one in all of the heavens or in the earth or under the earth can stand next to you. We all crumble because you're so wonderful. And in Jesus' name we pray. Somebody say amen. 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 Well, I was listening to, um, sometimes I put Lennon Ravenhill on while I'm trying to fall asleep because he's got a great British accent and it just helps me had. He's passed now. But I was listening to Lennon Ravenhill talk about um, a time that he walked into A.W. Tozer's office. Now, if you don't know Lennon Ravenhill and A.W. Tozer, you should. Um, they're probably at least some of the most important godly men of the last century and um, you should put down everything off the Christian bookshelf and just pick up some Tozer and it'll be worth your time. 
Um, and so Seth and I were talking this week about how much Tozer's writing in particular has meant to us. But Tozer was Leonard Ravenhill's senior. Um, and so Leonard Ravenhill walked into A.W. Tozer's office and um, A.W. Tozer called him Lynn. And A.W. Tozer says to Leonard Ravenhill, he says, Lynn, do you see that rug on my floor? And Leonard Ravenhill said, it wasn't a very impressive rug at all. It was just a small little rug. He said, I paid 68 cents for it. And Leonard Ravenhill was thinking to himself, okay, where's this going? And then he tells Leonard Ravenhill, he said, some days I, I call my secretary and everyone else from the church, I tell them to go home. And he says, I cancel all my meetings and I just lay belly down on that rug for three hours, for four hours, for five hours, and I just worship. He said, I only worship, I don't pray. I don't sermon prep in my head. He said, I lay on my belly and I just worship. I just tell him you're holy and you're beautiful and you're wonderful. And now I've been in such a season um, with, with Seth and I, I've been in the season of pray, pray, pray. And, and we, we want to keep pressing into prayer. We want to be a praying church. But I was so challenged to process what is my worship life like? When's the last time I just sat and adored him and I was thinking about that story for a couple of days and it was messing with me and I came home from work and Haley says to me, I bought a new rug for your prayer room. Um, yeah, okay. Um, she didn't know what I was thinking about. Um, and I thought that story was indicative of where I think God is taking us as a church and as a house. Ravenhill went on to say in the same sermon, he said, um, he said how many of you like to be disappointed? And talking to his crowd. Obviously, no one likes to be disappointed. And he said, how many of you like to be a disappointment? And I don't like to be a disappointment. I don't like to disappoint my kids or my wife. And he was saying that he really believes that many times when churches gather together and they begin to worship, that heaven's a bit disappointed. Because the worship we bring is flat. And sometimes the worship we bring is not from the depths of our bellies, like really, really savoring the beauty and the majesty of who God is. We haven't really thought on the attributes of God enough to, to stop and say with the saints of the Old Testament, your steadfast love endures forever. To just, to just dwell there and to tell them how beautiful and how wonderful he is. Now, moving from there, my vision... In our vision, I think our staff and our elders' vision for the coming years. And we say we exist to see the glory of the Lord permeate this region. My vision is that there would be more folks in the low country whose lives sing of the beauty of God. Not, not just have encountered God once before and are now going through the motions, but that we would honor, I'm thinking about Romans 12, 1, where Paul said this, um, he said, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So Paul says that worship is presenting your body as a sacrifice. Now, that's a really interesting way to, to talk about a life laid down for worship, because when Paul says present your body, that, that's it. It means everything that happens within the frame that I walk around in, right? My time and my energy and my efforts, my mind is a part of my body, that I'm presenting all of that as a sacrifice unto the Lord, that all of me would bless his name, that all of me would belong to him. Now, I'm telling someone recently that we as a church are a product of, we're, we're the product of the charismatic movement, and I'm not ashamed of that at all. I know that 
there's a stigma that comes with believing in the gifts of the Spirit. You guys know me. I don't really care. Um, I'm not ashamed of the fact that I pray in tongues and believe in the power of the Spirit. Paul said, I pray in tongues more than any of you. And so um, take that up with Paul. And so uh, I'm not ashamed of that a bit. But as we move forward, there are some areas where the charismatic movement, from my perspective, slid out of balance. And so I was trying to tell someone, when I say, when we say as a church, we exist for his glory, what we're saying is, is, to an extent, the charismatic movement got to this place where it was just about bless me. It was about, I've got this gifts of the Spirit, or I've had this encounter. We, 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 we began to live for encounters. Now, encounters are beautiful when, when God steps in and meets us and just knocks us on our butt. It's wonderful. What's not beautiful is when we keep pretending like it's still happening when it's not happening. Like God might not be knocking us on our butts anymore because he wants us now to get up and go share the gospel with somebody. And, and I was thinking if, you know, if, if Jacob was a charismatic, he would have wrestled with God one time and then for the rest of his life, he would tell everyone that he wrestles with God every night and he would be wrestling with thin air. Um, because we meet with God and then we feel like we have to reproduce the encounter or it's not legitimate anymore. But what, when I say for his glory, I mean that, that God baptizes us in his spirit and then we get up and go. And we, we take the most precious oil that we have, the most precious perfume of our life, and we pour it out at his feet. When I pray, I pray for you, and so sorry, but I pray, God, ring us out for your glory. And what I'm not praying is, God, we want to have more encounters, although we do. What I'm praying is, God, twist us and ring us in our workplace. Call us to the mission field. Lord, thrust us to share the gospel even when we're uncomfortable. I want us to pray for the sick even when we're a little bit embarrassed. I'm, I'm saying, God, use all of my life. Every Present my body as a living sacrifice. You hear it? All of my, my body belongs to you. And when God pours out his spirit on us and baptizes us in fire, we want to remember that he baptized the early church in fire so that they would carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. Do we believe in the baptism of fire? Yes but we believe it's for carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth, for his glory. And there is something about, as we pour ourselves out, paradoxically it's true, the more God comes to see him and meet us and fill us up. And when your posture is, it's all about me receiving more, it seems to dry up, the river dries up, and then you, you just begin to kind of fake it. But when your posture is, God, ring me out, pour me out, I'll go in anywhere, I'll serve, I'll say anything, I'm ready to sweat and bleed and cry for your kingdom, he seems to meet us more and fill us more. And so the entirety of this series, um, from my perspective, again, we're talking about Ezra, we're really talking about Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, after the Babylonian captivity, going back to Jerusalem and establishing in Jerusalem worship again. So the entirety of this series to me is about that. It's about getting us to the place where our worship is song, it's giving, it's sweat, it's all of our bodies belong to Jesus so that Christ would really be glorified in this region. You guys kind of hear what I'm saying? With, with that in mind, I'm going to tag one thing really quickly. Um, we have said as a church, again, that we want to, we want to see the kingdom of God impact this community. This week, 
I'm just tagging this, so forgive me. This week, we got a call about um, a couple of children, a, a, a sibling group who needed a home to, um, they were going to be put in foster. Um, and so some of us who are licensed foster parents, and some of us already have placements, we were unable to help because our pla- we, we have too many already in our placements. And so I I'm, I'm just want to say that we weren't able to help. That's all I'll say. We weren't able to help, and the situation... Um, wasn't solved as it could have been solved if there are more Christian families in our community willing to step up and foster. Um, no condemnation, no shame. I just know that you're the kind of people that would like to know that. And so I just wanted to inform you that I felt a bit like we missed this week because um, we could use more parents, more families stepping up. Just to remind you really quickly that we've partnered with Lifeline, an organization that does all of the foster training here at our church on Saturdays. You can do everything you need to do to be a foster parent here at our church. Just want to lobby that quickly as we move to the text. And to say, that's a part of our worship. It's a part of our worship to say, God, my home is your home. When there are children that need help, my home's your home, God. My life belongs to you, all of it. All right, Ezra chapter 3. Now again, we're skipping over a genealogy, or a list of folks who went back from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, um, I heard Reinhard Bunke say once, you know Reinhard Bunke, that great evangelist, say once that he was reading um, genealogies in his Bible plan. And so when you do a year Bible plan, you don't get to skip the genealogies. You got to read them, right? Like it's part of it. And so he said he was reading in his Bible plan the genealogies and it felt really mundane. And he said all of a sudden he felt, um, he felt like the Lord was saying to him, every person in this list I know and every person in this list is meaningful to me. I walked with, I drew. And so even when we think of genealogies, we're reminded of the omniscience of God that, that, um, that covers the earth. Are the lights freaking out again? It's, it's my, it's my beauty. It's just, the lights don't know what to do when I stand here. They just, they were, we had a full on disco light show on Wednesday night. It was really bad for a second. It was fun. And then it was like, we were all nauseous because the lights were freaking out so much. All right, y'all do your best to ignore that. I know that's distracting. All right, let me read to you from Ezra chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltai, with his kinsmen, and they built an altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. Um, Sorry, they they set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land and they offered burnt offerings to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths as is written and they offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. Now, let me give you, again, just quick context. We are talking about the Babylonian captives. Israel, who was taken from Jerusalem, Jerusalem was burnt to the ground, and for 70 years they lived as slaves in Babylon. 
Now remember in Ezra chapter 1, Cyrus rose up and decreed that the Jews could return to Jerusalem and that they should rebuild the temple and offer sacrifices unto the Lord. And so what we just read was about the first wave of people who returned to Jerusalem after being slaves in Babylon for 70 years. What we're told that is that on the seventh month, the seventh month, all of Jerusalem gathered as one man. Now, that the text is telling us that as one man, in, in total unity, in, in total partnership, they gathered together in the seventh month. Now, as 21st readers, the seventh month isn't particularly significant, but the seventh month for, for Jews was one of the most holy months of the year, if not the most holy month. There were multiple feasts that happened in the seventh month. Um, the Day of Atonement would have happened in the seventh month, the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, the, the New Year, the blowing of the trumpets. The, the way that Judaism has honored the calendar has shifted a bit, um, and, and it's kind of hard to delineate here, but, but this would have been the New Year, the blowing of the trumpets. They would have celebrated a special Sabbath on the 9th, the Day of Atonement would have been on the 10th of the 7th month, and the Festival of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booth, would have began on the 15th, and that was a week-long event. And so what we find is that they've settled in Jerusalem, now comes the 7th month, the greatest month of worship, and they gather in Jerusalem as one man. Remember that they still have no temple. Right? The, Jerusalem's still pretty much laid to waste. There's no temple. And so what we learn is they gather as one man to build an altar. We see in the text, it says that they build an altar and offer burnt offerings according to the law of Moses. So, Israel, why did they go into captivity in the first place? Because their worship have become stale. There, there are multiple reasons given in the text of Jeremiah. One, they've gone after false gods. The prophets say that they go through the motions with sacrifices, but they don't care for the poor. See, even there when you're thinking, when, when God says, you've gone through the motions of the sacrifices, but you don't care for the poor or the oppressed, God is saying, your worship is not complete worship until your worship is not just ceremony, but it's practice in your life. See, and so when I'm saying, uh, even when we're talking about orphan care, I'm saying that the scriptural command, and, and all of the prophets, the prophets are very frustrated when the people of God don't care for the fatherless. And so the scriptural command is for us not just to participate in the ceremony of worship on Sunday mornings, but it's to allow all the facets of our life to be worshipped. I'm, I'm singing as I give. You can clap to that. That's, that's good preaching, I guess. You know, who, who knows? Um, You guys hear me? I'm singing as I give. As I work with work ethic, I'm singing unto the Lord. As I care for for children who need care, I'm singing to the Lord. God's, God's frustrated so many times in the scripture when the people don't care for widows or the oppressed. And so um, Israel is judged. They were brought into Babylon for several reasons, but the, but the source would be that their worship was just ceremony and it wasn't heart. And so again, we're talking about getting back to the place where our worship is heart. And, and I thought this week of David, um, do you remember when David took a census? He wasn't supposed to take a census. And so there was judgment on Israel. And then, then he intercedes and God says if he offers a sacrifice, then the judgment will stop. Do you remember this? And, and so he asked for uh, a 
he asked for land and, and the supplies to build an altar, and then he asked for the, the sheep and the cattle and the things, the animals he would need to sacrifice. And, and someone comes and says, look, you can have it all, David. And David says, no, I need to buy it because I won't bring God a sacrifice that doesn't cost me something. See, I'm suggesting that sometimes our songs don't really cost us anything. That maybe the lowest form of worship is to walk in a room and just sing songs off of a screen. Now, when your life is worship, it becomes the overflow of life. When all week long I served him and I loved him and I adored him and all week long I laid on the ground and told him how beautiful he was. Then when I gather with my brothers and sisters in Christ, this is kind of the, the, the icing on the cake, the moment where we get to say together, you're beautiful and you're wonderful. That, that is, is good. But when all we do is come together and sing a song, that maybe is the lowest form of worship we could possibly offer. And I'm not trying to be critical I'm, I'm trying to drive us to the place where our hearts really love him. And so what we see is, again, that these lights think, I am so good looking, that they just, they're just going. Um, what we see is that they turn to, um, it says that they went to the law of Moses and they offered the sacrifices accordingly. So that what I want to talk about now is how do we get to the place of real worship, real heartfelt worship. The first thing they did was they went to the scriptures and they said, Yahweh, who are you? And how do you receive worship? See, so many times we, we presume that God is like us. And we instead of us being made in the image of God, we make God in our image. And so we worship him how we think appropriate. And we haven't stopped to go, go to the scriptures and say, God, what kind of worship do you require? And the first thing Israel did is they went to the word, to the scriptures, and they said, what kind of worship do you require? And what they found was that God required sacrifice. So before, before they went to build a temple, to build the house. Now think of Solomon dedicating the temple, right? When Solomon dedicates the temple, the glory of the Lord, the glory clad fills the temple and no one's even able to stand. It's such a powerful moment. Do you, but do you remember what Solomon did before they dedicated the temple? They slaughtered thousands of animals. It was a total blood fest. Sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice. They shed so much blood because God is holy. And and, and so as we, I'm, I'm getting off my notes here for a second. I'm sure I'm going to hit everything that needs to be said. Um, <laughs> shoo! <laughs> Dang. Yeah. Get behind me, devil. Turn off. Um. Nope. So, um, first, we look at the scriptures, and what we want to do as a church is be a people who really love the word and who ask of revelation, God, what are you like? What we find is that God is holy. That's the one description given of God, and it becomes all we can say is you are holy. That's why it's what the angels cry, holy. We've talked about this before, but what the word holy means is essentially above the rest. It means a cut above the rest. So literally, when we cry holy, we're just crying, God, you are not like us. You are higher. 
you are above. We are just saying, the rest of us are here on this plane. You are infinitely above us on an entirely different plane. Totally, totally superior to us. And so, when we find that God is holy and that God requires sacrifice, there are a few things that we stumble into really quickly. I'm just going to lobby this for a few minutes. One, sacrifice requires that a people acknowledge their own guilt. Why, why is the first thing Israel does, why do they bring bloodshed? First, they have to acknowledge that God is holy and that they are sinful, that they have fallen short, that they have not honored the holiness of God. And so Israel now has been in captivity for 70 years because of their sin. So the first thing they're going to do is bring sacrifice and declare, God, we are guilty. We acknowledge that your holiness has not been honored. We acknowledge that we have not hallowed your name properly. We acknowledge that you are better and more beautiful and higher than we've acted like. So the first thing they do when they bring sacrifices, they acknowledge their own guilt. And then they are, they are asking for substitution, right? Let's just think carefully. Why sacrifice? Well, we've said before that it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When, when Adam and Eve sinned and God killed an animal and clothed them with animal skin, we already see substitution. The concept, again, I know it might not be popular in modern Western society, but the concept is that there's an innocent life, an animal who was violently killed to take my place. So the blood of the innocent pays for or atones for the guilt of the guilty. And so first, they're acknowledging their own guilt. Secondly, in sacrifice, they're crying out for substitution, for atonement. Third, they're making pleas for mercy on the basis of this atonement. And so when they come to worship, I want you to hear me say, this is a sacred thing to them. This is a holy thing. They are dealing with a very radically holy God. This is not casual, common. They're not, they're not joking. There, there is a sense of sobriety and weightiness to what they're doing. And they are coming to God before His throne and saying, God, we are guilty. God, we bring sacrifice. We are pleading with you. Have mercy on the basis of this blood. And they're asking God to grant them repentance. That there would be a real change of heart. Now for us as New Testament Christians, what does that translate to? That translates to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross being absolutely central to real Christian worship. For a long time now, we have, um, we've begun to, in all of our worship songs, we've begun to sing, and kind of the reflection of what I talked about earlier from the charismatic movement, in our singing, we're singing a lot about our own personal experience. We're singing, and I'm not throwing stones, I'm just drawing a conclusion. We're singing a lot about um, God... Teach me to walk on the water. God, help me to push through hardships. And there's room and place for all of that. But we have maybe neglected the fact that Christian worship begins and ends with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And 
and we got real uncomfortable for some reason over the past 50 years. I can show you this in books where pastors have been taught that people don't really like to hear about blood. And, and I want to say to you, I don't, I don't really care if you want to hear about blood or not. It's, it's central to the Christian message that Jesus Christ was the innocent one. Isn't it strange that the moment Jesus steps on the scene, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What a strange proclamation. But John was saying from the start, Here's the one who will be violently murdered, that the people of God will be able to come to the Father and say, Forgive us because of this blood. Wash us on the basis of this blood. Have mercy on us because of this blood. And there's never a point in our Christian lives where we leave the place of being in relationship with God on the basis of Jesus Christ's sacrifice. I wasn't saved by the blood of Christ, and now I'm kept because of my good works. I'm saved by the blood of Christ. I'm kept by the blood of Christ. And my good works, when we talk about um, really trying to serve the poor, when we talk about caring for the orphan or, or really doing evangelism, all of my good works are worship. All of my good works, it's just worship and thanksgiving. And it's just saying, God, thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, as we drive down there, what I am saying is this. We, we prayed, we sang and prayed, Lord, send revival today. We cannot have revival until we bite down on the cross of Christ. We really try to understand it, meditate upon it, sing about it. We've got to get serious about substitutionary atonement. My life being forgiven on the basis of that holy Lamb of God, without spot, without blemish, who was violently murdered to take my place. The innocent life that took my place. So the first thing we see about real worship is that real worship understands the need for blood. And it refuses to leave that place. Whether modern, trendy church likes it or not, we have got to bite down and teach our kids Nothing washes away your sin but the blood of Christ Jesus. And when we gather to worship, we need to remind our hearts that before we ever sing a song in the temple, before the glory of the Lord ever fell in Solomon's temple, first there was bloodshed. And when we gather... Before we just assume and rush into the throne room and say, here I am, I'm worthy. We need to lower our hearts in humility and remind ourselves, God, you receive me because your son was crucified on my behalf. God, you bless me and anoint me and use me only because I am washed because of Jesus Christ's sacrifice. And we, we don't want to run ahead and pretend like we earned God's favor. We need to remember that we have God's favor because of His Holy Son. And if we don't get that right, literally, we have everything about worship wrong. Everything about worship wrong. Now, let me, let me just move through a couple more points. What the Scripture told us today is that the, the people, they, they worshipped God on the, the Feast of Tabernacles. So remember again that they're in the seventh month in Jerusalem. They have no temple, but they build an altar to start having sacrifices. And then they celebrate the Feast of Booths. Now remember what the Feast of Booths is. It's a celebration of the exodus from Egypt. And so the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths is when the Jews would all essentially camp out for a week in tents. 
They would live in tents for a week to remind themselves of the desert, of being brought out of Egypt and living in the desert as they moved towards the promised land. Booths is a celebration of deliverance. Booths is is a celebration of God's faithfulness. And so in a way, we see them, these exiles, again, who are, they weren't delivered from Egypt, they were delivered from Babylon, but they are joining their hearts with the Exodus deliverance. And they're saying, just like the Israelites out of Egypt, we've now left Babylon and we are celebrating God's deliverance and favor. This is where we would celebrate his steadfast love towards Jerusalem that endures forever. Even though Israel has sinned and being taken and judged, they now have been delivered, returned to their homeland because of the goodness and the faithfulness of God. God. I want to just tag this point that I thought was really interesting. I don't remember which commentator made it, but it was interesting. Part of booths and part of tabernacles, sleeping in a tent is vulnerable. So think about Jericho. Why was Jericho so terrifying? Because it had huge walls, right? The people who lived in Jericho felt very secure. They had seven foot deep walls. But when Israel slept in tents, their enemies surrounded them. In the, in the desert, there were enemies everywhere. Every night they went to sleep, they were very aware of their vulnerability, that there was no wall. But by sleeping in a tent, by celebrating booze, Israel is declaring, even without walls, we are totally secure. They're declaring, in the face of our enemies. And now the text told us here that these Jews in Jerusalem, they also have enemies in the land. And by sleeping in tents and not sleeping in structures that are more secure, they're declaring in the face of their enemies, we're not scared of you. God brought us out of Babylon. He's bringing us into Jerusalem. God's been faithful to us even in our sin. He's had mercy. He's going to be faithful to us today. And there is a sense in which the people of God must always be willing to be in a vulnerable place. Right? Like faith requires stepping out and risking. And in the face of our enemies, and I would say in the face of a culture who spits on Christianity, we have to be willing to sleep in a tent. Or in other words, to, to, to be vocal, to allow the stones to be thrown, and to declare. God brought us out of bondage. He's bringing us into his promises, whether you like it or not. That's part of the declaration of booths. Next, I'll just show you one more thing and we'll get ready to close. There is something strange about this celebration of booths, celebration of uh, the holy month. And, and that would be that there is no king. Um, so the, the, the Jews have been allowed to return to Jerusalem, right? But they're still technically, it, it'd be the same as in the Greco-Roman world, they're still technically under the, the, the Medes and the Persians, that empire, the Persian empire at this point. And so there's no king on the throne. And so even when you think about Solomon, right? Like there, there, there were prayers to bless the king, that the son of David would be on the throne forever. And so a part of Israel's worship was the throne being filled with the son of David and there being um, a, a, a monarchy, but that was submitted to the Lord, totally submitted to the Lord. And so as they celebrate this celebration of booths and the day of atonement they're very aware of the fact that there is no king that's strange this is the first time in in israel's history where they're where they're celebrating these feasts in jerusalem offering sacrifices with no king now belonging fully to the persians so we're introduced to the leader who's the governor of jerusalem his name is going to be zerubbabel 
Zerubbabel is actually listed in the genealogy of Jesus. He's, his name means son of Babylon. And so he is a, um, he is a Jew who has been commissioned from Cyrus to go to Jerusalem and to be the governor. But the main person that we're, we're introduced to in this text, name is Yeshua. Now, Yeshua is the high priest. So Yeshua is not the king, but they do have a high priest, which is good. But they have Zerubbabel, who's the governor for Persia, but they don't have a king. Now, that's an uncomfortable place for Jerusalem to be, and it's not the fulfillment of promise. The son of David's not sitting on the throne. But I want to turn to Zechariah chapter 6 with you, and to show you, Zechariah would have been a contemporary here, and to show you a prophecy of Zechariah that leads Jerusalem to continue to look for and to hope for the one who would be their high priest and their king. This is what Zechariah uh, prophesied in chapter 6, verse 11. He said, Take from them silver and gold, and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. Now, that's the same person. In our text, he's called Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak. Yeshua is just a shortened... It's like saying Josh instead of Joshua. It's just a shortened, firm word of Joshua. Take, uh, Make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Why is the, why is the high priest wearing a crown? There's never a time in the history of Israel where the high priest wears a crown. The priest and the king are two totally separate offices. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man who is named the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on the throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Now this is fascinating. There is a man named Yeshua who should be the priest on the throne. Now, you know that the name Jesus is just the, the, the English transliteration of the name Yeshua. Jesus' name was Yeshua. So in this moment, when they're celebrating a feast and they don't have a king, Zechariah prophesied this strange prophecy that no one really understood. And he said, take silver and gold and make a crown for the high priest Yeshua. Have him sit on the throne. One day, the branch called Yeshua will be both the priest and the king, and there will be peace in all of Jerusalem. Now, what does that leave Israel wanting for, waiting for? the day when they will have a king again. Now the fulfillment of all of this, his name is Christ Jesus. He is both high priest, the one who shed his own blood for our sins, and he is the king of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. We have today a high priest who is also our king of the universe, and worship must begin and end with him. He is the fulfillment of every expectation. He is the fulfillment of every promise. Every yes and amen in Christ Jesus is yes and amen by God. All of God's plans and purposes come to pass in his holy and beautiful son, and he has been the expectation for all of history. And so for us, we must bow our knees and worship Jesus Christ. Not a man, not a program, not a denomination, not a church building or a structure or a leader. We bow our knees before the high priest who wears the crown as king, who is the beautiful, wonderful savior of the universe. Now that's good. Even the lights couldn't shake then. I think that's good. Oh, they didn't turn them off. Now, these are simple truths we uncover from the text today, but profound enough that these exiles, as they come back to Jerusalem, they must get serious about worship. 
The judgment again being, the reason they were stripped from Jerusalem in the first place is that their worship was half-hearted and stale and it was not worthy. Think again of Leonard Ravenhill saying, no one likes to be a disappointment. We don't want our worship to be disappointing to the Father. We want to bring him the kind of worship that's pleasing to his nostrils, right? Like a holy incense that rises to heaven. But Jerusalem must get serious about worship again. And that doesn't start with building a great structure. Although the temple will be built and is central to worship, it starts with building an altar. It starts with confessing the holiness of God. It starts with repenting and acknowledging their own guilt, pleading with God for mercy on the base of blood atonement, substitutionary atonement. And they look for and expect the day when Persia, where the Persian Empire will no longer rule over them, but a high priest will sit on the throne. And there, we again, we just land at this place where if we're going to be serious about worship in our singing and in our living, Jesus Christ must be first and last, the Alpha and the Omega, the first thing on my mind when I rise and the last thing on my mind when I fall asleep. Why not get a prayer rug and lay it on the ground and just lay there for a while and worship? Get up from your rug and hear of someone struggling and get out and serve. Get out and share the gospel again. When's the last time you really shared the gospel? Why not, why not get up off of your rug after worshiping and decide to really live holy? Maybe get rid of the internet if it's become a stumbling block. Why not put the alcohol down if you're living in drunkenness? Why not make sure your marriage is holy? Peter said, Peter said that you should honor your wife for the sake of your prayers. Why not get back to having a serious God-honoring marriage? How about we get serious about worship? About Jesus Christ being the center of all we do. Remembering His holiness and His majesty. Our need for atonement. And that worship must not just be songs that we sing, but a full river that flows from my chest. If you go ahead and stand to your feet, we're going to get ready to close. It's our prayer that this place would always be an altar, just a place where worship is released. We pray, we pray constantly that this house would be a house that contends with angelic beings, that we'd go hard, that our worship would be so meaningful and beautiful to the Lord. Today, I want to open the altars. Our altar ministers will kind of be hanging out in the altars. They may come by and pray for you, but you don't have to, um, you don't have to come to them unless you have a specific need. There were a few words that, um, one in particular I thought we should share was that um, someone felt that there was someone here with pins, um, metal in their legs, and that you're just dealing with a lot of pain from that. And there was a word that we think the Lord wants to heal, deliver, some, deliver you from some of that pain. If that's you, we'd love for you to come and pray. If you need to give your life to Jesus, you've never really bowed and asked for forgiveness and mercy, there's forgiveness for you today. Today you can know you belong to God and that all your sins are forgiven, not because you've lived a good life, we know you haven't, but because Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and died on your behalf. That's you, the altars are open to you, we'd love for you to come and pray. But what I ask the, the worship team is just to lead us in a song of worship today, and I want us to lift our hands, and I want us to sing from our hearts, and I want us to bring Christ Jesus worship that is worthy his name the altars are open if you want to come and just get on your knees and open your hands and say God revive my worship life um, you're welcome to do that I believe God really wants to stir some of us back to a life of, of real adoration so Seth and team would you guys sing for us
Worship your majesty. Come on, let's worship. You're beautiful, Jesus. Worship your holy name. Jesus, my everything. All that I am is yours. Worship your majesty. Worship your holy name, Jesus, my everything. Come on, don't hesitate to get all that I am is yours. Worship your majesty, Jesus. Worship your Oh, I love you. Oh, I love you. Oh, I love you. 
Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Come on, give him a handcuff of praise. Oh, we love you. We love you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. Worthy, worthy, worthy. Worthy, worthy, worthy. Hallelujah. Well, the altars are going to stay open. If you'd like to receive prayer before you leave, you're welcome to, to hang out. We'd love to pray for you if you're sick or struggling at all. But if not, you are officially dismissed. We pray the Lord would bless you um, this week and that God would use you to reach this region for the gospel. And I want to challenge you to get serious about your worship, man. Let's be people of real hot worship. We love you so much. We're so thankful for you.